Hello and welcome to The Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Bellotti, and I am really excited for today's topic and for today's guest. We're going to talk all about how to use data science resources to enable an entire org to run effective experiments. And we have Mara Church, who's the director of data science at Patreon. Mara, thanks so much for joining. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. I'm excited to chat. I am super excited to dig in. One of the really early episodes we did on this show was about some data science stuff. And the more that I've learned from other guests and the more that we have dug into growth topics, the more questions I've I've had that have built up. And I love Patreon and, and their product and all that. And I am excited to chat with you. So why don't you give the folks listening a quick background on you and then we'll go ahead and jump in. So my name is Mara. I lead the data science team at Patreon, and I've been at Patreon for almost five years, coming up on my five-year anniversary in a month. I joined as the second data scientist and have built the team and now manage a team of seven data scientists. Um, And we do experimentation and analytics and business intelligence and machine learning. So we're a centralized, full-stack data science team enabling the product team, the marketing team, the finance team to do everything they need to do with data. And specifically, I've seen this journey of building up experimentation really from the ground up. Um, So have a lot of context of how to use experimentation for growth and for building a better product and a better experience for users, creators and patrons for us. Very cool. And five years is very exciting. I just hit my (laughs) five year at Drift. Uh, There's so much that you see during that sort of journey at a company like the ones that we're at. So that's super cool. Yeah, it's amazing. It feels like maybe five different companies in five years, uh, which I think has been a really rich experience. Absolutely. So why don't we start with some baseline context for the folks listening, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about how your team is set up today in relation to the rest of the company. So today we're we're all centralized in one data science team. Um, and if you talk to data scientists or data science managers, you know, there's kind of these the centralized model versus the embedded model, whether you have data scientists reporting to data science managers or kind of reporting into product. Um, and we're kind of a hybrid. So, you know, everyone reports into the same team, but we staff data scientists into product teams so that, you know, you might be a data scientist working on the fan patron experience team for a good six months and really getting to know that area and helping run experiments in it and design metrics. Um, So within the seven folks in the team, they're staffed to different parts of the core Patreon experience, which is like payments, creator product, and our fan patron experience part of the product. And so we have data scientists that are really deeply embedded with those PMs, with those product pods, with engineers, and building and iterating to make those parts of the product better. Um, And then we also um, partner with the marketing and kind of sales and uh, success side of the business as well to make sure they have metrics and, you know, attribution and all the fun marketing problems that are uh, slightly distinct from the product analytics problems as well. Always such fun problems. (laughs) So was the team always set up that way. I I love the embedded model. Was that how you started and grew it up? Or has this been more of a recent shift? Yeah, when we started, I think people were wearing way more hats. Like you would kind of go from designing a marketing metric to running an experiment to like making a dashboard all in one day. And the biggest evolution is that we've really started to specialize within the data science team. So thinking more strategically around the kind of data science work we want to do in-house. So for example, one of the things my team does is build machine learning models to fight fraud. Patreon is, you know, we're about to process a billion dollars of payments over the next 12 months to creators. So billion dollars of payments equals high potential 
responsible for fraud and risk. Um, so we've thought a little bit more about like, you know, you don't just want to kind of go into an area space like fraud and, and just work for a few months. It takes a long time to make meaningful change and impact in that area. So we've become more specialized. And even on the product side as well, we really have data scientists who are experimentation experts or product analytics experts, um, which I think just helps us kind of build deeper knowledge within the team of the kind of data science and product problems that we have. Yeah, I would imagine that all that fraud stuff is quite a long-term and very intensive sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a reason that there are fraud specialists at many companies. You think of like Uber and Lyft and Shopify, like at anytime you're processing payments, you're going to have some sort of risk that you're introducing to the business that's important to, uh, to keep in check. And data science is, you know, a big part of that for us at Patreon. So you had talked a little bit, and when we chatted before recording this, we talked a little bit about how experimentation is at the core of the data science culture and the the reason that your teammates are embedded into the rest of the organization. Can you talk about maybe how often experiments are being run and, and kind of what you and your team's role is in all that? So experiments for us at Patreon, what I'm proud of is it's really, it depends on the quarter and what the product team is building. So some quarters will run 20 or 30 experiments. Like we did this kind of six month sprint of experimenting with the payment flow, the main checkout flow on a, on a creator's page on Patreon. But then some quarters, we only do like one or two big experiments and some we do none at all because sometimes we're focusing more on, you know, resolving tech debt or focused on kind of zero to one product building where, you know, you're not really iterating and experimenting. You're working with reference customers and, and really getting a product off the ground. So yeah, we, we kind of think about experiments as a tool in our toolbox. And we try not to use that tool for everything, right? <laughs> like not everything can be solved with an A-B test. But I think the the kind of broader thing that my team tries to drive is this culture of experimentation, which to me is really around building a hypothesis around what your users are doing or what you think they will be doing, um, and then testing that hypothesis in a meaningful way. I'm actually proud that we don't you know, run 200 experiments a quarter and that that's some like KPI we're trying to hit. And instead, we try to be really thoughtful around the right kind of experiment and, and what makes a good experiment. Yeah. And I would imagine that, for example running experiments on fraud maybe isn't something that you're always doing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we do test different versions of machine learning models against each other, which is quite common if you're iterating and developing um, ML models. But you know, you don't want to like turn off fraud protection for half of your creators. Uh, that would not be a good outcome for the business. So we we experiment a little bit more carefully there. Yeah. So on that note, what does a good experiment generally look like for for you and, and your organization? For me, a good experiment starts with a good hypothesis. And um, the, I love framing hypotheses as we believe X because Y. So for example, like we believe more patrons will go through the checkout flow if they have a little pop-up that explains what Patreon is because we think they're not knowledgeable about Patreon when they arrive to patreon.com. So that's like a belief about user behavior that's grounded in research or experience or talking to users. And you always need to have a good hypothesis. Like if your hypothesis is, you know, we want to change the button to blue because it, we believe it will drive more revenue. That's not grounded in user behavior. <laughs> that's like just what you think is going to make the product better. Um, so good hypothesis is key. And then a good metric really is important. So measuring the right thing in an experiment, making sure you're not measuring something 
too far up the funnel or too far down the funnel, like experimenting on revenue is can be really hard to do depending on your product. And then I think a good product reason for doing an experiment, why are we running an A-B test or a multivariate test instead of just shipping the change and making sure your product managers or your growth people or your marketing team is like has a reason to do an experiment because depending on your infrastructure, they can be quite expensive. They can take a long time. So you want to make sure you're, you're doing it for a reason and not just kind of experiment for experiment. Sake. So there were three things that you said in there, good hypothesis, good metric, and good reason. I would, based on what you said, I would assume that the PM is kind of the owner of the, the reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is the hypothesis and the metric particularly owned by a specific role between the data scientist and the PM? I definitely expect data scientists to own the metric. I think in a good experimentation culture, anyone can have a great hypothesis. Like you'll have hypotheses coming from your sales team or or uh, your engineering team or uh, your IT team. Like anyone should be able to come into a you know a product meeting or brainstorm and say, "Hey, I have an idea about user behavior that I think we should test." So I love the idea of a hypothesis coming from anywhere, and the PM is really kind of like the groomer of those hypotheses. Like they should have a backlog of hypotheses that they want to be testing in the product area they're working on. So yeah, I think the hypothesis can be democratized. The metric for sure should be owned by a data scientist, and then the reason really comes down to the product manager. Yep. And it feels like the the reason and the hypothesis are, they kind of go hand in hand, right? Like there could be tons of hypothesis, hypotheses, like you were saying, from anywhere across the organization. And it, it comes to the PM to say that there is a good fundamental reason to follow through on any given hypothesis. And then they kind of turn to the data scientists and say, how do we know if this thing is right or not? And how can we work together to make that happen? Yeah. And I think like, for example, you might generate a bunch of hypotheses in an area of the product that's not particularly high impact. And so you might have all these people that are like, hey, product manager, we want to test these 15 hypotheses. And then the PM has to make the judgment call of like, this is not actually an impactful thing for us to be working on. Like, we don't have a good reason to try to experiment in this way. Um, So that's what I kind of see as the key difference is like this understanding of user behavior. And then there's the product expertise around where behavior is meaningful and impactful within the app or, or the site or whatever it may be. Yep. So there's two pieces that I really want to dig into. One is maybe we can talk through what a classic non-messy process (laughs) looks like for an experiment kind of from start to finish and the role of data science in that. And then maybe after that, we can dig deep into metric design. I would love to, to get your take on that. So why don't we start with run us through what that process looks like from we have a hypothesis here to we're coming out the other end and saying if it was true or not. Well, I love that you said non-messy because, you know, I think anyone that's done enough experimentation has kind of horror stories of what's gone poorly. Um, so I think at Patreon, in an ideal case, we go from ideation to running to analyzing within like two weeks. But many of our experiments run longer for that or could be more complicated. So it depends. And I think first there's like ideation, which is that hypothesis step and sign off on this being run as an experiment. So like, again, that kind of question of do we need to run this as an experiment or or can we try something else? Um, Then we have experiment design and what the variants are. We try to list out potential risks. That's really a collaboration between um, the design function, you know, your designer, your PM, 
and your data scientist. And also I think engineering is really important in that conversation because there's a feasibility question of like, how hard is this going to be to implement in this way? Then once that's kind of the experiment's designed, you have implementation, you hopefully instrument it and are logging the data and you're QAing it. Then once it actually goes out, we set up some monitoring dashboards and we set up our notebook that's going to analyze it on the data science side. And finally, you do the analysis, the discussion, and the decision of next steps. I also think there's a really key piece here around reproducibility. So like, if a data scientist in two years finds this experiment right up, is there a link to like where they can actually see what the granular definition of the metric was? Is the decision to ship or not ship documented somewhere? If it was like really nuanced and a deep discussion about what to do, can we understand why? A big part of our more recent improvements to our experimentation process at Patreon have been really being better about the documentation and producibility of, of our results. So that's kind of the process we go through. I think data science is really involved throughout it, but it's it's key that PMs drive it as well. And you know, this process we have now is like pretty evolved, um, but it started super lightweight. Like it started with basically a checkbox. And then as we made awful mistakes and like really had things that go wrong and had a ton of bugs, we were became more aware of what made good experiments work and and built up this process over time. Yeah. And maybe it, it would be helpful for me to just understand a bit about what is the core expectation of the data scientist during this process? Like what would you look at and say the data scientist on this team through this experiment did a really good job or not? The core things that a data scientist does in an experiment, I think about um, just experimental rigor. Like, are you actually randomizing in the right way? Are we using your experiment framework, whether it's in-house or whether you're using, you know, third-party like Optimizely? Are you using it in the right way to produce statistically valid data? That's one is just rigor. The second is logging. Like, I definitely hold my team accountable. If there's an experiment that runs and we don't actually log the metric needed or we can't measure it, like that's on the data scientist for sure. Um, and then I also really expect data scientists to help product understand what we might call like secondary or trade-off metrics. So, you know, maybe you're trying to increase conversion through a flow, but you're trying to have a metric that you also do no harm to at the same time. So I think about data scientists as bringing that kind of holistic view of metrics and how they interact with each other and helping the PM think through the potential risks. Um, so those are, I think, the big three, like statistical rigor, logging, and then sort of metric design and interplay. Okay, there's a bunch of stuff there that I really <laughs> want to dig into. On the side of rigor that you were just talking about, do you have like an operational guidebook that all of the data scientists follow for what rigor looks like? Like here's here's how we'll measure, here's the tooling for the logs, or do you have a little bit more of a culture where the data scientists kind of each have their own approach to the process? And as long as the foundation is there, you're good with it? I love that question. Data scientists constantly debate about like how standardized your statistical rigor process should be. So I think overall, like hiring data scientists who have run experiments and understand statistics is key, or having at least someone in the org who understands stats. For us, what we have is we have what we call like standardized metrics. So these are metrics used in experimentation that we have studied deeply. We've worked with them a lot. We know how they behave. We know their like variance and and the, the number of um, like the sample size needed to observe changes in them. And we have kind of standardized notebooks and methods for doing the actual analysis, whether it's a t-test or a NOVA or whatever it is. But the actual like 
I'd say collaboration and the rigor with that, like how much rigor is needed for this given experiment, that's really up to the data scientists for them to kind of use their judgment and say, here's how important this experiment is. Here's how complicated it is. And some, you know, are super straightforward and, you know, you're just running a a simple t-test on, you know, two means. uh, And some need a lot more in-depth experimental design. So we're kind of a mix of Patreon. We have some standardized tools. We have notebooks. We have these metrics that are well-defined. But then each data scientist is really um, making some judgment calls as well throughout the process. And I think depending on your organization and how evolved you are, you know, when you think of places, big companies like Lyft and Uber and Netflix and Amazon, they have like huge experimentation platforms that are helping them do all of this in a very standardized way. Whereas if you're at a scrappy startup, you're going to be starting from scratch and you might be using like an A-B test calculator online to start with your analysis. So there's a whole gradient here of of process and standardization. And I think you want to find what works well for you. Yeah. A-B test calc, (laughs) whatever that website is, got a lot of use at Drift when we were spinning up our growth team. (laughs) Yeah, totally. It's like the PM's favorite. Like I actually, I kind of love when I see a product manager show a screenshot of it because it shows some knowledge, right? It shows that you like understand that there are confidence intervals, which I think is already like a huge thing for a PM to do. (laughs) Absolutely. And for anyone listening, if you just Google A-B test calc, I think it's like the first result that shows up. It's a really useful tool for measuring statistical significance. Okay. So let's circle back to another thing that you started to touch on, and maybe we can transition into talking about metrics. So metric design is one of the ways when we had connected, you talked about picking a like how to think about picking a goal. And I, I really love the terminology of metric design. Can you talk through what exactly that means from your perspective? So for me, the reason metric design is so critical is metrics have a huge impact on how people understand not only the product, but success and goals and your feeling of satisfaction at the end of the day, right? Like whether you're hitting this goal or not. Um, So I think that for me, metric design means being intentional about what you're measuring. Are you measuring what actually matters? If that metric changes, does it represent a change in your business? So for example, like one of our key metrics at Patreon is conversion rate through the pledge flow. And it doesn't just matter because it's a funnel and it's a conversion rate. It matters because it tracks whether we're helping creators get more patrons, which is directly aligned with our mission to basically get creators paid. So that metric is very intentionally designed to be something we can measure in experiments, but it also tracks to our mission. So I think like thinking about the type of metric you want, you know, are you looking at volume? Are you looking at percent change? Are you looking at rate? And then thinking about if I goal against this metric or if I run an experiment to increase this metric, what am I incentivizing in my product or in my product team? If my goal is just conversion, is it going to mean that we make the pledge flow super spammy and we put a giant button on it that says pledge now and we remove all the context of what a creator is, why they're using Patreon? So thinking about like if this were our metric, what would we build to change it, I think is super important to make sure you're actually measuring you know, the right thing and measuring what you're trying to build towards. Yeah, that unexpected impact of like the incentive around the metric is so important because I've seen it before where the way that the goal is set up is like get X more people 
using or to know about or use for the first time like any given feature and so then the pm is just incentivized to like jam it into the nav bar and Mm -hmm. you know put a popover when someone logs in for the first time when they show up next like all those things are kind of like downwind results of that metric Absolutely. Yeah. At Patreon, I think the other thing I've seen a lot too is sometimes you can have two product pods whose metrics are like in conflict with each other. So like maybe one team is trying to increase the launch rate for us, um, but the other team is trying to increase the dollars that creators earn in their first seven days. So one team is going to be like, you know, trying to get as many creators as possible into the funnel. And the other is going to be trying to make sure they're as qualified as possible. So like really thinking through when you have goals, especially like how do those goals either help or hinder other teams goals um, so that, you know, we're all rowing in the same direction. And I would imagine that you would expect of the data scientists on your team to be aware of what's happening across the other parts of the product. And so your team members would be talking about that to make sure that they don't create that conflicting scenario. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's a huge role of data science, especially a centralized team like us where, you know, we're all talking about our team's metrics all the time is pointing out, hey, that metric you just designed that acts in direct conflict with this metric that I'm working on for another team. So really having those discussions and seeing, you know, how do you find metrics that are harmonious to each other um, and not going to make one team feel like crap if they're they're kind of their goal is harmed by another team's work. Yep, And to continue on this thread, because I think it's a really interesting one that usually doesn't get talked about all that much. The w- one thing that you had mentioned, I don't know, like seven, eight minutes ago was the down, we'll call it down funnel impact of any given experiment, right? So you had mentioned it as your goal is to move one thing, but that could have additional negative impacts on some other number. How do you think about the tracking structure and the measurement of those things. Cause I'd imagine you can't say like for any given experiment, we're going to measure every single thing <laughs> that like this thing could potentially impact, but there, you must have like some thought process for it. We have to go as far as at least tracking these two or three other things. Yeah. So we have a rule at Patreon that each experiment can only have one response metric, which is the metric, you know, that's actually measured in the statistical test. Because what I've seen a few times is if you have, let's say, three response metrics and two of them don't do well in the experiment and one does, it's very easy to cherry pick and be like, wow, look, our experiment really did super well because this one metric grew by 20% and then you forget about the other. So that's like a rule that we follow. What we try to do is have one primary metric, and then a few secondary metrics, which are like other things we would expect to be moved by the experiment. And then I would say globally, kind of across the product, you want to have what I think most people call do no harm metrics, which is like, hey, we want to increase payment retention while not hurting engagement or upgrade rates or unsubscribes or whatever it may be. And so those metrics aren't things that you might measure in the experiment, but you are looking at them weekly and you're saying, hey, you know, we just shipped two experiments. Are we seeing any directional movements or trends in our do no harm metrics? So that's kind of how I think about it. The the one response metrics, maybe a few secondary metrics, and then this kind of suite of do no harm metrics that you have, you know, good tracking and dashboards and, and knowledge around. I love the framing of the do no harm metric. It's such a good way to place the importance on it and make sure that everyone's paying attention to it. That's great. Another phrase people use is like guardrail metrics. So, you know, we want to increase conversion while keeping our retention within 
2%. So kind of setting product guardrails around around a goal, just so that, again, you're, you're kind of developing intentionally. So on the on the note of metrics, you covered, you call them response metrics, which is the core one that's being tracked in the experiment. You talked about the do no harm metrics. And then I think you also talked a little bit about secondary metrics. Are there any other types of metrics that you you and your team think about? I think the other big one is like North Star metrics. And there's, you know, all sorts of resources online for developing North Star metrics. And these are really like guiding what we want to call it, like vision related metrics. So usually you wouldn't use a North Star metric as an experimental metric. You'd use it to really understand like, where is this product going? So for example, you know, for our creator product org, we're thinking about like creator engagement and kind of use of how creators are using the tools within our app. We have a metric designed around that. And it's, you know, way too complex and kind of too low sample to be used as an experiment metric, but it's helping us build to the right direction. So, you know, you definitely also want to have North Star metrics that are kind of one level above that hopefully are laddering up to company KPIs, whether that be revenue or engagement or dollars processed or bookings or whatever it may be. And how do you think about having, you know, what could be considered a good metric versus the perfect metric? Because I would imagine, and I've seen it, where it's pretty easy to get so caught up in trying to figure out the perfect metric that you just don't even do the experiment. And, (laughs) you know, it takes you like two weeks, the the team takes two weeks to figure out which thing we want to track, whereas it would have been better just like do it and get the good approximation. I have seen this so many times. It can be very tempting, I think, to design the perfect metric and spend all your time thinking like, if I have the perfect goal, then I'll build everything perfectly and I won't make any mistakes. And I think often like good enough is good enough, especially in startups. So you'll you'll know if you don't have a good metric because you'll start looking at it and you'll start building things and it won't move or it'll move in the opposite way. And you'll think, hey, this is not tracking what we actually need it to track. So I try at least to really push my team and our product team when we're developing metrics to put a line in the sand somewhere, start with some sort of heuristic or definition of a metric. You can always iterate and make it better. We have some metrics. We track creator trust at Patreon, which is an important metric for us. And we've done at this point four or five iterations of it over the last two years. And so I'd say start somewhere and, and make it better from there. You're never going to have a perfect metric and it's it's it might hinder you from actually making progress on your goals. And on that, maybe you can give a quick example of what you would consider to be like a really good metric or goal and then maybe a really bad one just so folks have something to anchor in. Yeah, I think the, the good goals are, are low enough fidelity to be relevant, but not so specific as to stifle innovation. Like a good goal shouldn't tell you, here's what to build. It should help you understand if what you're building is working. So for example, right now at Patreon, we're talking a lot about increasing multi-patronage, which is the proportion of patrons who pledge to two or more creators. And that's specific enough to focus us to say like, Hmm, what are the product ideas that would move multi-patronage, like a discovery page? Or what if when a creator that you pledge to pledges to another creator, they do like a collaboration with them and a, and a, and a shared post or something? But that metric is not prescriptive to how we get there. You know, it doesn't say increase the number of patrons who are landing on a podcast page every day. So I think that's important is like low fidelity, but not it's not going to stifle you. And I think a really bad goal is like a goal that's either way too specific or way too big. So like 
growing revenue 10%. It's a great goal to have. You should certainly have it at like the company level or the or the financial plan level. But putting that to a product team, I'd say is generally might not be right unless you have a product that is tied to like a very specific kind of limited business line. I'd say though, ultimately the, the worst goal, which I've certainly seen my share of as well, is like a goal that you don't believe in or that you're not excited about. You know, if you design a goal or a metric and you say like, either, first of all, I don't think we can do this. It's either it's way too ambitious or maybe it's way too unambitious, or you just think like, this is not going to drive meaningful impact to the business. That kind of demotivation I'd say is going to be more harmful than, than just like a bad metric design. Are there any other resources, I guess, aside from this podcast, this has been <laughs> great, that people listening should maybe look into that could, you know, help them continue their education around metrics? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, we use Amplitude at Patreon for logging and Amplitude puts out a ton of great resources around like metric design, especially the, the you know, not the super technical, like what should your window be and what should the rate be, but the thought process around being intentional. So I've certainly used some of their resources before. And then I think like, I love, I don't know, Lenny's newsletter. I'm sure that your uh, many of your listeners are subscribed to it, but there's so much good stuff in there around metrics and logging and instrumentation. So if you're not subscribed, that's a great, I think it's, he's doing a weekly newsletter that I really read every week. So those would be two resources that I'd for sure check out. Awesome. Is there anything else that you feel like, I mean, I feel like we could talk on this for hours. <laughs> Forever. Uh, yeah. Is there anything else super critical that you feel like we missed in the conversation here that you want to make sure gets covered around the role that data science plays in, you know, making sure that experimentation is part of the culture and successful? I think it's, yeah, the one thing I'll just underscore is like, depending on the stage of your company and where you're at with experimentation, like it's easy to think because experimentation is, is kind of come off as very sexy that you need it when actually what you need is like good data, good logging, good metrics, good segmentation, good dashboards. So I think like making sure that you're at the right stage of your, whatever it may be, data science journey, maybe your product analytics journey and using experimentation in a thoughtful way rather than just experimenting for experimentation's sake. That's been really key to us at Patreon. I think we've we've messed that up a few times. We've maybe experimented a bit too much and, and kind of pulled back. And so just being intentional around when and how to experiment, I think will help you build a great culture. Great parting notes. Very much agreed with that. All right, Mara, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Absolutely. So for those of you listening, go ahead. If you like this episode, hit that subscribe button, check out the past ones. We've had some amazing guests here and there will continue to be even more amazing ones moving forward. This one has been one of my favorites. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that or not, but for the people that listen this far, I think it's okay for me to toss that out there. So Mara, thanks again. And if anybody listening, as always, you have any feedback, questions, ideas, whatever it might be, my email is matt at drift.com. Go ahead and reach out, hit that subscribe button and leave a review if you are a fan. Thanks. And I will catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.